welcome to the Flower Friends Podcast. This is Sarah Nayani coming at you from Seattle, Washington, where I grow loads of flowers in my small city yard and create floral arrangements that bring the outside in with local seasonal ingredients. On the pod, I share my experience switching careers and starting my small flower business, Grow Girl Seattle, and interview inspiring guests about flower growing and floral design. I hope you'll come along with me as a flower friend to learn and grow together. This is the first episode of season four, and I have a special treat for you. My daffodils just started blooming here in Seattle, so I thought it was the perfect time to share this conversation with Jason Delaney from PHS Daffodils. Jason specializes in classic, historic, and novel daffodil varieties, both for home gardens and exhibition growers. I first heard about PHS daffodils through posts that Erin Benzikane from Florette Flowers made. She was buying and growing his specialty varieties, and so when I saw that, I hopped onto his website, got on his newsletter, and then when he opened his 2022 catalog, I ordered a few varieties that I planted last fall in kind of like their own special protected area, um, a a separate planter away from all my other daffodils so I could really see the cool varieties that I ordered and not have them get mixed in with other daffodils and not have them get stolen away by all the critters who love to steal flower bulbs around here. The special daffodils that I ordered from Jason have just started to peek up through the soil and I'm so excited to see them bloom. When they do, I'll share some photos on the at Flower Friends podcast Instagram. So anyway, I thought it would be wonderful to sit down with Jason and ask him all about his background, his company, and growing and hybridizing daffodils. I even snuck in some of your listener questions, so I am so excited for you to hear this convo, and we'll get right into it. I just wanted to say a quick note that this convo was recorded in early February, so when you hear the part about whether it's too late to plant extra bulbs that you might not have gotten in the ground yet, just know that his answer is several weeks ago. But if you have extra daffodils you didn't get in the ground last fall or winter and they haven't rotted by this, the time that this episode is airing in late March, you know, you could still try throwing them in the ground and see if they bloom next year. Okay, on to the convo. It's a great one. Hi, Jason. Welcome to the podcast. Sarah, hello. It's such a pleasure to be on your wonderful podcast. (laughs) We're excited to have you here. Um, So first, can you tell me a little bit about PHS daffodils and kind of maybe first what you grow and sell? Sure. So PHS daffodils, uh, PHS stands for Professional Horticultural Services. It's just the hobby branch of my full-time business. I actually have a um, full-time private estate garden design and maintenance position where I I have six clients um, that I work for in St. Louis County. And the daffodil component, which is what you're interviewing me for here today, uh, where you found me on Instagram, that's my lifelong obsession with daffodils turned into sort of a a bit of a giant, um, how do I say, 
obsessive compulsive, you know, collecting disorder <laughs> that has gone from a few varieties in my apartment backyard in St. Louis 20 some years ago to now over four acres of daffodils. And we have close to 4,000 unique varieties. So it's all on family farm in central Illinois. And the sales of these bulbs is not so much that I'm trying to generate income from the daffodils. It's just that we have to rotate through the collection every year, a different section of the field gets lifted. So all the offsets, I might as well make those available to other people. And it's been a very successful venture in, in doing so. Uh, for years, I would just donate the bulbs to local parks and garden clubs. And someone was like, why don't you sell these? And I said, you know, I might, I don't know that the general public will be willing to pay these per bulb prices uh, that, that we sell them for. But you know, it's fair to other hybridizers whose flowers I grow and to the people in the greater global daffodil community that, that hybridize these. And it's it's a lifetime to hybridize just a few generations, a human lifetime for a few generations of daffodils. So, so there's a price point in there that's reflecting that. And without any hesitation, I sell out each season. So it's a really, it, it's been a lot of fun and it's opened the world for me up to a, a whole new spectrum of people surprisingly and thankfully younger people like you and I uh, who have a passion for flowers uh, the cut flower growing group is probably my largest following on Instagram and my biggest uh, customer support group so it's just you know you think you know it all until you you venture into a new realm and you discover there's so much there yet to learn and so you inviting me onto this podcast was fantastic. And I get to see a little bit of your backstory as well. And then, and who you're representing. And that's a lot of the same people that are coming into my world. So, so yes, I, I grow and I sell daffodils as a hobby. Uh, it's a weekend sport. <laughs> hunting or fishing or skiing. I, I, I like to get really dirty and, and grow bold. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm thinking about all of those community gardens and places that you donated the free bulbs to. And I'm like, wow, there must be some beauties out there. I hope they know what they're sitting on. <laughs> they certainly do. They certainly do. And it's Good. great for me. And so I live in St. Louis, Missouri, in the city. And so the parks in the neighborhood is where a lot of these are planted. And they're historic parks. They're they're substantial parks for our city. And so it's great if I don't have time to run to the farm, which is two and a half hours east. I can just go, uh, you know, a few blocks away and I can stroll through literally meadows of my own bulbs. So it's, um, there's something nice about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of the community that follows you, um, I came to you through Florette. She posted about your beautiful daffodils. And I think it's really cool that I've always loved daffodils, but I think people tend to think of like the bright yellow ones and I think, you know, over the years, there's been these really cool varieties coming out. And I think that's exactly what you're doing is hybridizing for different types. And so um, right. we'll get into that more, but I just wanted to ask you up front if, you know, that florette share or other things like that, if, if that, if people in the flower cut community seem to be passing your info along and <laughs> absolutely, Aaron, Aaron was very kind to do that. I was a huge, huge uh, promotion. And we chatted a little bit and, and she did say, you know, sometimes, you know, they can backfire and that you get so much <laughs> of following. I'm like, you know, I don't mind that right now. 
Um, and it, I, I do think that it substantially bolstered our 2022 sales as well. So huge shout out to Florette for, for that and also for their love of daffodils, my goodness, and for their love of daffodils that aren't what we would consider the traditional mainstream yellows and oranges and, you know, all daffodils are perfect, but it's nice that there's such a, uh, an appreciation now for these I don't want to say non-traditional because they're becoming the new tradition of, you know, the whites, the pinks, the soft colors, the the muted um, pastels, all these things that are just, there's so many wonderful flowers out there. So yeah, they're so beautiful. They smell so good. There's just so many things to love about daffodils. So how did you first get into flower growing? So I was raised in rural Illinois in a very small farming community. Uh, neither of my parents were farmers or my family was not really, they did hobby farming, but it wasn't specifically for income. And my mother's claim to fame in all this is that she planted our three acre property line with daffodil bulbs when I was seven months in utero. And these were all from daffodil bulbs. She had gone around the countryside and, and sort of following my dad's tractor in the spring and she would dig them up and then she saved them and she planted them. So I was right down there at seven months, you know, and Truly, I think there's something to that because by the time I was four, I planted or I placed my very first order for daffodils from a seed company called Burpee Seeds, which back in the day in the 1970s, uh, not to date myself, had a very substantial flower bulb catalog every fall. And I still have that catalog and thousands of others. I, I also collect <laughs> antiquarian flower bulb material catalogs from the 1950s on, or I'm sorry, the 1850s on. And then, of course, all the catalogs that were part of my life. So, so that was sort of the, the initial background. But my great aunts and uncles, my grandparents on both sides, everyone, you know, they were all generate or um, depression era survivors, if you will, and born in the turn of the last century. And they were very strongly Midwestern rooted pass along gardener types. So they had everything, the peonies, the irises, daylilies, and daffodils, which for us here in the central Midwest are the bomb proof plants you know you can't go wrong they're great pass along you can share them with people so i had a huge exposure to that as a child and my grandparents my maternal grandparents frank and jewel stanford uh they were they had the really great garden you know like they had the most daffodils and tulips and all these crazy wild things um they they at one point i was probably six or seven they had a couple hundred different irises wow. that they grew as well and my grandfather's sister imogene winchester she had the daffodil collection and she probably had a hundred cultivars of daffodils during the time that I was a toddler. My mom would always take me there on the way to school, elementary school in the mornings in the spring. So I could run through the garden and it was just this wild garden with trails through it. And I would pick handfuls of flowers to take to the teacher. So it's always been a part of my existence. And then I went to school to Michigan State University, oh. initially for design in horticulture, but initially for design but then I realized that, you know, not everything in life is free, including college tuition. <laughs> and not that I was ever an excessive partier, but, you know, I like to go out on the weekends and entertain with, with other friends as college students do. And my mom and dad were not about to pay for those extracurricular activities. So I got a job on the campus at Beale Botanical Garden, which um, is celebrating its 150th anniversary this year. Go green. Yeah, go and, white. <laughs> 
my husband went to Michigan State, so. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Spartans are the best. Um, so, so all of that was the basis for my horticultural career. And then I came to St. Louis as an intern for Michigan State. And I interned at the Missouri Botanical Garden. And from there, I stayed. I had a 21-year-long career with the garden. Uh, and, and one of my specialties was the flower bulb collection. I oversaw the flower bulb collection there from 96 until 2015 when I moved into upper management, uh, but I was still managed the collection. So, so flower bulbs, daylilies, irises, they have all been a huge part of my, my life. And I also, no one knows it, but I also have a vast collection of daylilies. I've been hybridizing daylilies since I was in the sixth grade. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, also, I also have a historic iris collection that's several hundred cultivars strong. Wow. So. Are those irises um, like traditional or bearded or combo? They're, they're the bearded irises, okay. but they're the old school from the 1800s and early what? 1900s. Devoid of ruffles, really fragrant flowers. Um, and as I found over the years, because I, I curated the iris collection at Missouri Botanical Garden, where we had over a thousand cultivars of the oldest to the newest. Um, the historics tend to have the highest disease resistance. So it's another nice thing here in the Midwest because we're so humid in the summertime um, that botrytis and leaf spots, which afflict a lot of bearded irises, um, those historics don't seem to succumb to it as, as badly. So so it's a nice trade-off. And they're like the, the irises my grandparents used to grow. And that fragrance of grape soda or, or citrus is just, you know, there's nothing better. Yeah, that's well, really daffodil. Daffodil. <laughs> the one thing that's better. <laughs> that's really interesting that they're more disease resistant. I, I wonder if you're going to play around with hybridizing those at all with some of the current bearded iris. Heavens, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you just stick to daffodils. <laughs> I, have, I have enough breeding endeavors on the wind, or I should say, you know, in the thought and theory, there's every year I sit down and I write my breeding notes and my, what I'm going to cross. And it's just, it's just another thing to add to the plate. So irises, I'll leave to the, the wonderful iris hybridizers who are already doing that for me. Perfect. So. Great. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about what it was like to work at a botanical garden and kind of, I don't know, just what your day-to-day -day looked like? Sure. So I started as an intern and I worked my way up to senior management, which was a lot of fun. Um, I never expected I would be at a job for so long because I was, you know, horticulture is different than say business for uh, specifically because you're, you're planting seeds of things that might take decades or centuries to mature. So I'm not the kind of person that wants to just get in there, get my fingers dirty and then say, I've done it and leave. I want to see the process. Part of my academic training was design and you can you have a great eye for design but if you're designing with plants and you don't know the intricacies of those plants their behaviors through the seasons through the years as they mature it sort of leaves a lackluster design in my opinion so i i went to this garden as an intern and i fell in love because it was just the greatest thing i you know i went to college for horticulture but i still didn't it didn't fully hit me that you could have a career in horticulture. It was like, really? Because, you know, my career of plants, if I had stayed in Flora, Illinois, my hometown was soybeans, corn, wheat, um, not ornamental collections. So I I stuck around and I, I loved it. I worked my way from entry level, gardener, and then all the way up the ladder, overseeing various collections throughout those years with an emphasis on the iris daylily, um, flower bulbs, 
the dwarf conifer collections, hosta collection at one point. And over that period of time, my 15 years actually being outdoors in the garden, I had close to 70 volunteers that I worked with. I worked in the what were called the intensive gardens, which was all the specialized plant collections. So that provided me the insight into all these plant societies, which I, I've belonged to many of them over the years. Um, <laughs> each very interesting groups of people uh, with their own unique personalities as the, as individuals, but also as societies. And the like the North American Lily Society, the American Iris Society, Hosta Society, Daylily Society, American Daffodil Society, and on and on. So that then allowed me to travel for conventions, regional meetings. And because I was so young, they're like, hey, you, we need young blood. Would you mind like being the secretary or how about vice president? And but for long, you're you're on the board, you're a president, you're, you know, I worked my way up through the ranks in a lot of those groups locally and regionally. So so that was fun. And then you you meet all the people and that's how you meet the hybridizers who are creating all these new flowers. And, and I'll say one thing that I, I think a lot of the new generation, especially millennial gardeners and growers are have missed, unfortunately, and in no fault of their own, was just 10 years ago, 15 years ago, was sort of the heyday of the last sort of round of the, the great giants of American horticultural hybridizers of all these plants, the lilies, the irises, daffodils, I mean, just to name peonies. Um, you know, it's an unfortunate thing that humans have a an expiration date. And the hybridizing interests in these plants sort of waxes and wanes. And we've seen a lot of really great hybridizers of the last century who have just departed into the next flower realm. Um, so, but, but that said, their works are recorded, they're written, you know, and there's so much information on the web. And there's so many new people now wanting to do this same kind of breeding from a totally different perspective. So I think not that the world needs another daylily even though I love to hybridize them <laughs> because you have all these backyard hobbyists who really are just like pretty with pretty. They don't know the scientific background so much as they're just curious. Well, that curiosity has created in the last 10 years, multiple new divisions of flowers that 10, 15 years ago, you couldn't even have imagined not only in color combinations, but the, the way the petals are held on the flower, the way just the morphology of the flowers. So, you know, yeah, we we miss all of the greats from yesteryear, but we look forward to having so many more people. So the botanical garden, long story short, allowed me that that perspective and that just to just dive in. And I also got a lot of world travel with that. I I was involved in several plant collecting expeditions through different parts of the world, and and this was where we went into the wilds. Um, Siberia was perhaps the most wow it was, it was an exotic trip it was we went we we flew into moscow and then we flew to novosibirsk which is in central siberia just above sort of where mongolia and kazakhstan uh convene at the bottom in china um and the distance from from moscow to novosibirsk is farther than from la to new york and yet that was barely halfway through the country of russia i mean oh the, the landmass that is russia is is unfathomable and we were on the on the ground there for 28, I think, days it was, um, in the wild collecting plants. And these are plants that we were looking for and for all these collecting trips. Different botanical gardens in the United States that have research programs affiliated with them um, are looking to conserve 
global species that are in, that are threatened, endangered, whatever that may be. And my botanical garden, Missouri Botanical Garden, is is one of the global leaders in botanical conservation around the world. So we would go off often in conjunction with other gardens in these partner programs, such as the North American Plant Collections Consortium or the Botanical Gardens Conservation International, um, where we were there looking for germplasm of plants that are extremely endangered or threatened, um, primarily because of humans. You know, yeah. it's always, it's always, we are always the problem because we want to farm more, graze more, we turn our goats loose. Um, we need more strip malls, you know, strip mining, maybe it is. So I was out there in the field to collect, and I've been to Morocco looking for daffodils in the, the high atlas. I've been to Republic of Georgia in the Caucasus a couple of times. I was actually there the year after their civil war in 2001, which was a an interesting time. I bet. And I was back 10 years later, and it was the city of Tbilisi and Bakuriani had grown so much, but the countryside was still the same. And I think of all the places I've, I've ventured, uh, Georgia has to be my favorite place. There's the nicest people on earth, the most incredible food. And then the, the topography is just, it's, it's extreme. You're down toward the Turkish coast in like Batumi, the coastal city, and it's subtropical. And you just drive an hour and you're in a subalpine belt, you know, where there's rock, snow and ice. And it's just, and it's like that throughout the Caucasus. So, so all of that was part of my botanical garden experience. I was I was spoiled rotten. I really was. I, yeah, to get to do that as a full-time job, I think that's what most people dream of as like a hobby and for that to be your career and, and get to go to all these places. That's incredible. So how did you like, how did you bring the plants back once you found them? So when you would go on those expeditions, you have to, you have to have a target list of what you're looking for. Okay. And then that target list has to be approved by the reciprocal institution. So in whatever country we were going to, whether it was China or Taiwan or Russia, their Academy of Sciences or their affiliate sort of hosting organization helped us write those lists. And then we would have to put those in front of the United States Department of Agriculture to make sure that it was approved for re-entry into the United States, um, that nothing fell into the Convention of the International Trade of Endangered Species, CITES, um, and like snowdrops, for instance, are common plant cacti, snowdrops, euphorbias, uh, orchids are all CITES listed plants. And there are some exceptions to those. Those are uh, those require an extraordinary amount of red tape clearance. Okay. So you have to have all this stuff pre-approved by the hosting government, our government, and then these international um, bodies that protect these plants and animals. And then of course, once you're there on the in on the ground, you find so many more things that you want to add to this your collection list. So it, you know, every so many days you find electricity, you find an internet cafe, you find some way to communicate with the outside world and you add to these lists. You, you find your, you know, affiliate at, let's say Chicago's international customs. You say, Hey, we found all these plants too. Let us know if we can, if we can bring these back. And once all the green lights are given, it's just every conceivable method of seeds, cuttings, roots, leaf, However you would propagate anything, you have to take all that into account and then pack it in such a way that it can also then fly back to the United States mm -hmm. and still maintain its its uh, integrity 
in case it has to stay in customs for days or weeks or months. So it's a lot of money. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of effort. So you have to make sure that when you leave that country, everything is is good to go. And with exception of a couple seed packets over the years, we never had any issues getting our stuff back into the into the states. And then our botanical garden and or uh, affiliate gardens that are involved in this collection trip would take this germplasm and then continue to grow it on, seed bank it, uh, do any genetic studies they wanted to, or you know DNA sequence it to see what it is. So it goes on and on. But I was always interested in the really ornamental plants of conservation concern. So great. Well, through all of the plants that you worked with and all of these adventures, how did you land on daffodils? Like what would you say are the characteristics that you most love about them? So the daffodils, again, just from birth, life experience, um, they're in the Midwest. I don't know if you've spent much time in, say, St. Louis, Missouri. Um, we have four very distinct seasons, and summer and winter are quite brutal. We don't have snow cover in the wintertime. We get ice. We get extremely cold. Like last night, I think it was nine degrees Fahrenheit here. Wow. Uh, before, it was almost 60 degrees Fahrenheit. And so our winters are really erratic, but we don't get the protective blanket. In the summertime, we are typically hot and dry, although the last few years we've had excessive summer rainfall, but we're extremely hot and humid in the summer. Like people talk about the Gulf states and how miserable Houston, for instance, would be. Well, St. Louis is no less humid, I promise you. <laughs> so we have to have plants that can tolerate those two extremes. And then spring and fall are sort of like, here, you deserve a break, you know? So daffodils are such resilient plants for this climate. Traditional daffodils, as we think of them, the all the divisions you would see in seed catalogs available um, or the cut flower trade. So they grow well. They're, they don't take a lot of, of course, the ones you pay the most money for will be the ones <laughs> of course. that give you the hardest time. And the ones that people give you free are the ones that are just, you know, incredible. Um, but they come back yearly. They're easy to work with. They're colorful. And they, for me, especially like, you know, people like, oh, crocuses, the harbingers of spring. No, no, no. Daffodils are the harbingers of spring because there's meat and potatoes to those plants. They, they give you a really nice full display very early on and it just keeps going. So it lets me know that the winter that I always need in my life to sort of clear the plate, you know, to start the, to start over again, we have finished that sequence and now we are ready to begin spring. And in my front yard for the last two weeks, I've had a cultivar called Rheinfeld's Early Sensation. It's a yellow trumpet, an extremely early cultivar, which typically wouldn't bloom here until like the middle of February. Well, it's been blooming for a couple of weeks. It's it survived that nine degrees last night. So, wow, you know, that's tough. That's tough cookies. So from here on out, every week I will have more and more stuff breaking the ground, producing buds and and by Hopefully the last week of March, all the way through the first week of April, I will have flowers in my field in some capacity blooming. Um, so tell me a little bit about how you started PHS daffodils. I know you mentioned yeah. a little bit, but how did you transition from botanical gardens to owning this business? So um, <laughs> I, at the behest of a couple of my clients, I've always during the entire time that I worked at the garden, I also had my own side business working hours after work daily throughout the week for people gardening, deadheading, pulling weeds, you know, doing some light gardening chores because public horticulture is not always the most 
how should we say fiscally rewarding <laughs> profession, but it's mentally rewarding, you know, and it's aesthetically rewarding, but I also have to pay the bills. So I did this for years and a couple of my clients were like, you know, Jason, just break free. You can do it. You have the interest, you have the, the customer backing here. Um, you'll always have clients do this. And then you can spend more time with the, the bulbs as well. So I did that and I, I have no regrets. It was, it was terrifying as can be, because I'm, I'm a person of stability. I want to know what the future holds. I, I look at that crystal ball every day to make sure that it's the same, <laughs> the same, you know, image back of comfort, stability, financial security, and leaving a position of a consistent paycheck for so many years where I was happy and where I was successful and I didn't need to leave to take this leap forward to completely start over again, although it really wasn't, was it was huge. And that first year, I was kind of white knuckling through, you know, every season, like I've done all of these things before, but somehow it was like, I had just started gardening for the first time. And I realized, hey, I, I did it. And I, I can do it again, and I can keep it up. So I started dumping more and more of my resources and time into the farm, family farm back home in this little town called Flora, Illinois, fittingly enough. And the daffodil collection that had always been, it had been on the property since 2003. Um, it just kept growing and growing and growing it. And yeah, <laughs> so you blink and in just five or six years time, it's my poor father. He, my father has always hobby farmed and I've spilled well into his acreage of prime ground where he grows soybeans and corn, but per linear foot, the daffodils generate more money. So it's a, uh, for him, the bottom line is, does this, you know, do we make money? Yes, it, it, it provides some income. So can't argue with that. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's a good business plan. Well, so could you describe the farm a little bit more like the layout between maybe your dad's crops and the daffodils and, and you mentioned rotating kind of how you, what your layout is like, I guess. So when I was born, they gifted a, a three acre pasture to me as sort of like oh. the a little spot of land where every year that farm proceed would go into a special account, you know, just so I would college fund, whatever. And when I was in high school, we even had cows back there in on this land and it, it otherwise would set fallow. So it had been fallow for a number of years. And I, the early 2000s, I, I said, hey, I want to put some daffodils back here. We don't use it for anything else. So we mowed a section off. I planted my bulbs. Um, it's very gently rolling um, ground. Eastern Illinois, it's farm country, bar none. And it's as a very specific soil type called Hoylton loam that is basically glacial dust that has no structure whatsoever. So grows really good crops and it can grow amazing bulbs if I rotate often enough, but I've sort of expanded the collection faster than I've expanded the implement collection to help me do that. So nonetheless, um, it grows really good daffodils. So you just kept expanding out and filled the three acre little patch. And now I'm into the fourth acre <laughs> north of that into the field. It's important when you're farming anything to rotate your crops. And for years, I was able to do that. I was able to grow my bulbs for three to five years and then sort of dig those and flip the field and go to a different section of that field to line them out. But I this obsessive collecting disorder that I, I am uh, susceptible to, I just kept buying more cultivars and traveling the world to find the newest, the best. 
for my own breeding program, but also just to have stuff no one else did. And I quickly filled three acres. So there was no place to swap out the bulb. So that was sort of the reason for moving us into the new field. Um, and of course, the collecting and the purchasing of new things <laughs> didn't stop there. <laughs> no, but I, I'm now on a rotational basis. So the ideal, I will tell you, is that every three to five years, I would lift, divide, and replant the collection. And if I if I wanted to produce flower bulbs the size of what one might get from a Dutch import company, I would do it every three years, no longer than that. However, we do everything by hand. Literally everything is dug by hand. It's cleaned by hand. It's packaged by hand. Wow. There's no organization except to mow. And my dad is mowing the fields down as I speak today because the ground is still good and frozen and we're cutting all the brush. Um, so because it's a labor of love and it's very physically involving, I have not been able to keep up with the every three-year rotation. So the bulbs that I sell, I always put a little disclaimer in my business terms, which no one reads, <laughs> and they're always surprised. But we do not supply gargantuan flower bulbs that you might see from a Dutch importer. We supply bulbs, daffodils that are typically the size of a tulip bulb and a little smaller. They will still flower. They will still grow perfectly well. They're just, they've been sitting in the ground for a number of years. So it reduces the mass of that bulb. Okay. But it, no way, shape, or form affects their health. This year, I've promised myself that for my birthday, I'm going to purchase a bulb digger. Uh, it's an implement that attaches to the back of a tractor. I've seen many of them in use. And I think, you know, it's just, it's a lot of money. And again, money. <laughs> I'm, I'm about hoarding the money, not blowing through all of it. <laughs> the future is uncertain. But, but I realized that I can pay it off easily because the it would allow me to do so much more. And, and most sound you know, um, bulb growers, of course, have these diggers because it just makes sense. You can lift the crop faster. You can rotate through the crops faster. So it'll allow me to, to really grow the collection better and also reduce the physical toil because, you know, after it's, when it's 103 or four degrees for a week on end, and that's of course the week that you're out there in the field in the full sun, digging the bulbs with, you know, 90% humidity, it's not fun. <laughs> it's not fun at all. No. <laughs> I posted some uh, some sort of screenshots of what the, the temperature and humidity and dew point are from time to time. Because people, I think most people, I would say that 98% of my customer base appreciates what it is that I'm doing insofar as it's a, even though I'm a commercial grower, I'm a small scale commercial grower. They appreciate what they're buying and, and what they're spending the money on. But some people are like, you know, are these prices per bulb or what, why are that? Why is it so expensive? I can go to the, the big box store down the street and buy 10 bulbs for what you're selling one. It's like, well, first, you can't buy the one that I'm selling. I can promise you that. Secondly, that bulb came from a farm where there were probably 10 hectares of that one cultivar, which is millions of bulbs that are all harvested, planted, processed mechanically. So the hours that it takes me to dig a 50 foot row, they would have had a 10 hectare field completely dug and put into the storage shed. So it's just, it's, it's labor. I mean, it's cost is what's involved in it, but that's, I never want to be so big that I lose track of the sort of intimacy of this small scale gardening. Yeah. Gardening. Daffodil <laughs> farming, I think you could yeah, farming, farming, exactly. That's what it is. That's what it is. So, so it's um, so yeah, that's that's sort of it. We the season is this in the springtime, we 
do all the evaluation of the cultivars that we will be digging and offering that year. And that's based largely on the rotation of the field. So each year, my my fields are divided into, into individual plots. So each plot, which might have 500 different cultivars in it or more, I go plot by plot and I'll dig that. And then I'll sort of cherry pick some others floating around through the, the larger collection. Um, and then we go back in ideally June, early June, when the foliage is starting to really drop and go limp. But it's been July and August the last couple of years that we start to dig. And it's usually a two-week process to get all the bulbs dug out of the ground. They go into big uh, lily crates, as the Dutch call them, but the big black plastic crates mm-hmm. per variety. And they're under fans constantly to keep them to keep the, the air moving through them. That's absolutely critical if you're lifting daffodil or any kind of bulbs um, that need to go dormant and dry off is to have air flowing through them. So we do that and then we come back about four weeks later, five weeks later, depending on how the, they have cured. And a lot of that for us anymore is how much humidity do we have? How much rainfall do we have that's keeping the humidity so high? Um, but usually four weeks, we can start cleaning them. At that point, we're taking all the old tunics off, we're shaking them. We're we're we never we never wet them or, or hose them off to clean them. It's always completely dry them. And then if you just take them in their, their mesh bag and you sort of rub them together rigorously, you think that you're going to damage the bulbs, but it doesn't at all. It self cleans. Then we run them through a blower, and then that gets rid of all the excess tunic and the the debris, the roots, whatever it may be. They go back into the dryers and they're there until typically September, we start packing orders for overseas customers because those have to be inspected um, by the USDA for phytosanitary certificates. And that's a process, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> and they're there all day and, and they're always great, but they have to look at every single bulb and count every single bulb. And it's a long time, it's a long day. And then October 1st, I begin shipping the regular orders. So what a lot of people don't know, and not that they need to, but I live two and a half hours away from where the farm is. So all of the daffodil packing and shipping is relegated to weekends. I I spend two or three days on the farm, sun up to sundown, and as late into the night as we can do it, getting the bulbs picked for the orders, bagged. I bring them back to St. Louis. And then from my kitchen, (laughs) My my warehouse kitchen, that's where they get boxed, weighed and boxed and labeled, and then they go out. So that will go through November. Okay. And then by Thanksgiving, I start to replant. I just finished replanting the first week of January. And then we start the cycle over again. And that's for, so that's, that's, that's a singular, that's a, a season, a seasonal glimpse. But the the greater field that we're not digging uh, what's very important to me is that we grow these as naturally as possible. A, a lot of the commercial growers want to keep their fields as clean as possible. No weeds, no other growth. They want to see the daffodils. They want the sun, the, the sun to hit the soil to really cook it for the daffodils sake. And there's, there are benefits to that for sure. But daffodils are native to Europe, North Africa, and then part of the Eastern Mediterranean um, sort of coastal countries. In all the areas where these daffodils grow naturally, but especially in Europe, and the the European species are the ones most aligned with what we grow here, or what we know as daffodils. They grow in areas that become sort of like a tall grass prairie. There's there's other forbs and, and grasses that grow up with those throughout the spring, summer, and fall months. So I emulate that in my field. 
to where we're not digging and where we're not replanting the new cultivars. We just let it grow up. We don't wow. mow it until now. We we let all of wildlife have its opportunity, especially for the butterflies and the, the migrant migratory birds that come through. There's so much biodiversity in these daff in the three acre daffodil field, especially because it's the oldest, most established field. And on my Instagram page, you've probably seen some photos of like the goldenrod fields or like the tufts of the goldenrod seed heads a month or two later. And that's all planted with daffodils but we leave it. And then those pithy hollow stems for so many of these native plants are what support the solitary bees, the insects that lay their eggs that overwinter. So they need that habitat. So we'll just do one singular rough cut, which is again this week. And then that's it. We won't touch it again until the next year. So that's it, so it, interesting. Cause when I picture here, like the tulip fields and everything, you just yes. picture kind of like a mud pit this time of year. And so it's really, really nice to hear that you leave it. And so is three to five years, that's about how long it's taking for each bulb to have other small bulbs growing off it. And that's Correct. what you're selling that, basically. Yes. That okay. Three to five year cycle. It takes them a year or two to reestablish. And that's with any bulb, whether okay. I'm buying them from Holland or I'm selling them to you, they're going to hit your soil. And they're going to say, who, where am I? <laughs> and that first year, the, the flower from the first year was already formed the previous year. So the daffodils set their flower buds typically in July and August. So you're getting a bulb that already has a flower bud in it. The next year, sometimes they're a little weaker looking, but then the third years and beyond, that's when they really go to town. Um, so we want to let them settle in, reestablish, and then offset. And usually in that three-year time frame, a singular bulb has offset two or three times. Okay. So I can get five, six, sometimes seven or eight bulbs out of that one in that three-year time frame. Great. And then are you of the the daffodils that you have in your field? How many of those are ones that you've hybridized versus you know ones that you purchased from somewhere else? That's kind of a species that or a variety that existed before you started hybridizing. About a third of the field space is dedicated to daffodils is my own seedlings. Wow. I have none of my own seedlings so far. I, I have two different Dutch growers that have my stuff in trial. And that's when I head over there here in the first of April, I'll get to see those flowers in the field, see how they look, see what they think of them. Um, I will this year sell a few new hybrids of my own in limited uh, quantity, but the majority, the vast majority of what I sell are the daffodils that were hybridized and introduced by someone else. Um, going back a little bit, and maybe this is jumping ahead, but it, to create a new daffodil takes years. So with any good breeding program, you want to first identify what your goal is. You know, if I, I want to create white petals with a brilliant vermilion trumpet with a white rim on it. I need to get as much genetic material that can possibly, hopefully get me in that direction as possible. Choose the best parents and then I make the cross. And it's as simple as pollen onto pistil from the two different plants. The seeds are formed, takes about a month to a month and a half to get a nice seed pod. And then it's usually when you're out of town <laughs> that weekend when they decide <laughs> to ripen and the seed pods pop open. But organza bags, best thing since sliced bread, because you can wrap them over the, the stems, you can trap the seeds. So typically two months after you've pollinated the flowers, you're collecting the seeds. Um, some growers like to plant the seeds immediately. 
emulating nature because that daffodil would have dropped them onto the soil right then and there. Some like to wait until August or September. I typically wait until I have time, July or August to plant them. And I'll plant them directly into the soil. And I, those, again, those black plastic crates, I sink them into the ground and I backfill them with a, a matrix of sand for drainage at the bottom and then potting soil and the virgin soil to the site or the, the native soil to the site. Line the seeds out like you would plant radishes. You you know, just okay. about an inch or so deep and a seed maybe every inch or two apart. Cover them up. You have to put mesh on them to keep the squirrels and other animals from digging into them. Put a light mulch of pine straw on them and then you let them go. And the next spring, they will come up looking like grass seed that has just germinated, like a singular little tiny flattish blade. Um, and they'll do that for the first three years. By the fifth year, you'll have normal, what we think of as normal looking daffodil foliage, two or three or four leaves coming up from that one bulb. By the sixth, but typically the seventh year, they will start to flower for the very first time. And it's a small flower and it's not what we would consider the complete or mature flower. That's another three or four years down the road. Oh my so, gosh. Yeah. So when from, you said lifetimes, you really meant it. <laughs> so from seed to what would be considered a consistent mature flower, you're looking at about 10 years. Well, then you have to start evaluating. Did that actually meet my goal? God, you hope so, but not always. Um, so then if it does, let's just say that there's something there, or as with all plant genetics, there's always going to be a surprise that you weren't expecting that is probably even better than what you were hoping for. Um, you have to produce them and it can take another four or five years of old fashioned, just planting, dividing, dividing for asexual propagation. I do not, contrary to popular belief, I don't do the chip and scale where you do them, you cut the bulb into wedges to produce little bulblets. It can be done very easily. I just, with my luck, they would all die. <laughs> all your that. special, beautiful bulb that you've waited so long to see the yeah. flower on. <laughs> so add another five years to it and you have a nice little stock and then you register it and then you find a grower in the Netherlands. They're going to chip and scale it and they're going to create thousands of bulbs in a few years time. And typically on its 20th year, it's ready for sale. Gosh. So when you see in all these bulb catalogs, the general, like the John Sheepers, the Brenton Beckys, Van England, all those companies, when they have new introductions for whatever year, 2023, I promise you that those cultivars are at least 25 years old, maybe older since they very first flowered. And a lot of the stuff, there's a um, uh, precocious is one very popular daffodil in the, in the trade. Precocious is, I, I'm pretty sure it's going on 45 or 50 years old. Wow. It's not it's not new at all. And if you think of all the breeding advancements that have occurred since Precocious, those are the kinds of daffodils that I specialize in collecting, also for genetic base. But so when you go to my website, you'll see some really unusual stuff. That's all the newest stuff that still is working its way into the commercial trade. So all the stuff since Precocious, or chroma <laughs> color or whatever the those bright, colorful types are. Yeah, well, that's what I wanted to ask you is what traits do you look for with the ones that you're bringing into your fields or with your seedlings? So what I'm typically trying to find are daffodils that have a unique appearance um, to what's already out there. But with that, they have to be incredibly rigorous to our weather. 
Um, for many years, when I was a child, a lot of the bulb catalogs would advertise daffodils as weatherproof daffodils, not the newest pink flowers or the roughliest or the, the most fragrant, but weatherproof. And I always thought, how, what, how boring is that? Like weatherproof daffodils. Ooh. You know, it's, like, it's exciting as watching the evening news as a child to see the weather report. But then you grow up and you grow daffodils on a, a barren farm in Illinois. That's there's no trees. There are trees, but few where it's perpetually windy. I've, I've posted some videos on my Instagram page of just how windy our field is. You, I, I will, I'm six, two and hefty and I can get blown away. So I need daffodils that can stand up to that, that have stem strength that aren't going to snap off or bow down flowers that can ideally not be torn because wind will shatter the petals very quickly, but aren't going to burn the petals either because the substance of those flowers is, is strong enough. So sun resistance is also good, but you know, for years and years, and with all plants, not just daffodils, people talk about the sun resistant varieties and how terrible it looked when the flowers faded. Well, change that vernacular. They, they, the metamorphosis of that color, it went from dark to light and it takes on a new, a whole new face. There's nothing wrong with that as long as it doesn't look damaged. So like any breeder, I want a resilient flower, ideally the flowers above the stem or above the foliage, not down in the foliage. Uh, which a lot of cultivars are cursed with. And something that on top of all that is unique that the public will like. When I was at the Botanical Garden, we would get close to a million visitors a year every spring through the wow. collection. And it was always the, the oddball daffodils that were sort of antithetic to what the American Daffodil Society promotes. Um, the American Daffodil Society always promotes exhibition cultivars, stuff you would like dahlias to where you would pick the stems and take them to a show hall and, and exhibit them in a glass tube. So you're judging only on the merits of the flower. Well, the plant is important also if you're a grower, a cut flower grower, or a gardener who wants a beautiful garden. And the public would come into the botanical garden and the, the most outrageous things, like there's a cultivar called Shrike. It's a daffodil that's, it's a split corona with pink uh, central coronal uh, segments that's just, it looks like someone took, gave a toddler some scissors and just said, chop it up, smash it flat against, you know, a cookie cutter. And, and there you have this flower. And that's what the public loves. And that's what I hybridize are things that, that you're going to say, oh my gosh, I've never seen one like that before. That's so amazing. I want that. And that's, I, I gave a presentation several years ago to the American Daffodil Society, um, much to the entertainment of some and to the chagrin of others, because it was the keynote address. And I said, you know, there are like 1,200 members globally of the daffodil community, but there are seven and a half billion other opinions that matter more. <laughs> and those, those are the ones that I want to cater to. So yes, well, thank you for being there to cater yeah. to us. <laughs> my daffodil mentors for sure, and all that that includes. Yeah. But the public opinion is, is what drives commerce. So. Right. Well, is it pretty unique to be growing and hybridizing daffodils in the U S because when I think of bulb orders, I'm usually getting them from Holland or basically places that aren't the U S. So I was just wondering if that's a unique thing. It, it is currently, but it didn't used to be. Um, okay. Actually you're in Washington state and in the 1940s during the embargo of Dutch imported bulbs, the Dutch were already set up 
in the Skagit Valley in Washington State down into Oregon. And in the 1940s and 50s, and then into, um, I think their last year of business was 2016, but the epicenter of daffodil breeding on the planet was Oregon, Hubbard, Oregon. Wow. Novelty daffodils uh, since retired. Um, that was the U.S. epicenter, I should say. England, Ireland, Australia, New Zealand. Basically, the colony states are where the daffodils have gone. The English are the ones who are most obsessed with these. Um, Herbert was doing the very first breeding of daffodils in the 1600s. Um, just, yeah, it. English, Irish, the Americans. Canadians, not so much, oddly. The, the Canadians love the daffodils, but... The Dutch are then going around the world and looking at these collections and then cherry picking what they think are the best. And then they they produce them commercially. Um, it's been, there are, in fact, in your area where the tulip fields are, there are also daffodil production fields. The state of Michigan has some commercial daffodil fields and they're all Dutch owned. There's still a huge Dutch presence in the US, but most of what is grown commercially for the global market is done in the Netherlands by the Dutch of flowers like my own or other hybridizers. So, well, I know it's very difficult to choose. It's like picking your favorite child, but do you have a few favorite varieties that you offered this year? And then I'd also love to hear what your favorites are, but also what your customers' favorites were the most popular. My, my favorites are always what the customer <laughs> likes the most. Their purchases enable me to buy more of what I like. Good answer. <laughs> I'm going to have to say, um, yeah, I, I want to redirect that that question to what are my favorite types of daffodils? Okay. Just, the names, it, it's just, it, it's too much. <laughs> too exactly. <laughs> Probably since, since childhood, trumpet daffodils have always been my, like, you know, it's the first thing you see. And we think of these yellow trumpet daffodils as the classic daffodil. But there are so many color combinations. And my breeding objective when I was a child, before I even knew what genetics were, it wasn't how, how new flowers came to be. There was a company called Brex, still around. Um, and they, as they may still to date, have the most outrageously color enhanced photos in their catalogs. Yes. <laughs> my grandma used to always buy one called pistachio, this trumpet daffodil that was green. And I still have these old catalogs of my grandmother's. And, you know, it was just, and every year they would flower and they were yellow. But they had one called Fortissimo that was yellow with a red trumpet. And I thought that was the craziest thing ever. Well, we never got it. So I would go out in the springtime, truth, and I would take red magic markers and I would color the trumpets of my grandfather's yellow daffodils <laughs> to make my own. So yellow and red trumpets and white and red trumpets would be a breeding goal of mine. And those are sort of my favorites because they're rare. I mean, it's it's taken 300 plus years of hybridizing to, to extend the corona and the pigment amount in that corona to get it to not fade and to actually have color. When you, when you breed trumpet daffodils, the longer the corona or the trumpet, the less enhanced the pigment. And you, you sort of cross the three-quarter threshold to a full trumpet length and the colors start to lighten or they, they're muted. Interesting. I wonder why that is. Uh, I'm not sure that anyone's exactly pinpointed why, but in the last 20 years, hybridizers have been able to sort of find the magical genetics to create now trumpets that are dark orange, dark pink, dark red. So 
trumpets. I love the trumpets. The split coronas. I love the flamboyance, the craziness, the the wow factor five of these flowers that you know people don't often think of them as daffodils. In fact, for decades they were marketed as orchid daffodils, which I mean, I guess what <laughs> kind of orchid is it that you look nothing like an orchid to me, but just the the corona that's been split and lays flat against the petals. So there's you see it's, it's so multidimensional. The ruffles show more. And then if you have a dark corona against that petal base, it's just, it's so colorful and fun. Um, the poeticus or the pheasant's eyes, I love them because they're often the latest. And it's such a pristine white color, but they have such a clovey fragrance to them. Um, and sort of when, you know, spring is is waning and you're you're kind of ready to move on to summer, there's always those few weeks of lag time and that's when the poets really shine through and remind you again why you got into Daphne. <laughs> and then I love the doubles. Um, that single-handedly year after year after year is what the customers want the most of. Mm -hmm. Double daffodils, white daffodils, and white and pink daffodils. And with doubles, especially here in the Midwest, we have an issue with blasting where the buds will never fully open because we get heat spikes during the spring months. So it's important to grow doubles that will fully open and look just like the photos, show them in the catalogs. And then when you factor the wind that we have, that really weighty double-headed flower on top of a stem, the stem has to be strong enough to carry it. So I don't hybridize the doubles, but I, I have almost a fetish of collecting as many doubles as possible to see which ones are good, both blast resistance and stem strength. Um, and it's amazing how many commercial varieties are actually really poor performers outside of a maritime climate. A lot of the double pinks that are on the trade uh, were hybridized in Northern Ireland or the United Kingdom, and they need that climate in order to be successful and to not blast or for the flowers to have all that color in them. And here in the Midwest, they're they're worthless. They're, they're great foliage <laughs> plants. And if you like popping the mummified buds, um, like it... When the the flower buds mummify, it's sort of like a, a platycodon flower or a fuchsia bud. You can just pop them and they make this very distinctive popping. <laughs> so if if that's what you want to grow daffodils for, they're great for that. But I wonder if that's part of the reason why a lot of people that I know that have invested in these new beautiful varieties um, haven't had a lot of success with them coming back year after year. And I wonder if that's part of you know, why is where they were originally grown and kind of acclimated to. I will say that is very likely part of the story. And I will also go out there and hopefully enough listeners are going to tune into this, this segment, most importantly, um, because I have so many cut flower growers that follow me. I follow back. I see their posts. I see their planting styles. And there's one area where we all need to be a bit more, um, aware and that is daffodils need to be planted deeply a okay. standard dutch daffodil bulb that's the size you know they're the size of a small orange they're they're large they're 18 20 centimeters around they need to be planted six to eight inches deep and i so often will see people doing these trenches that are a few inches deep they throw all the bulbs in there and then they cover them up and in the springtime, when they go back through to see all the flowers, and again, that first year, the flower was already in the bulb from the year before. Mm -hmm. The flowers look great, but you see the tops of the bulbs sticking out of the soil. And then the next year, and the next year, they'll lament that 
oh, they just produce foliage. They don't flower well anymore. You know, we thought daffodils were so great. Daffodils are great, but you have to plant them as a permanent fixture in your garden or treat them as annuals. And, um, you know, you can, people, tulips, a lot of times, I think most times, tulips are planted, picked, and then that crop is pitched and they buy all new bulbs. Daffodils can be treated the same way, but it's it's an expensive investment uh, to just pitch. When if you just add three or four more inches of depth to your planting beds, you're going to get years of, of growth. Here in St. Louis, uh, in the west, west of the city, about 45 miles, is a place called the Shaw Nature Reserve. It's a, a thousand plus acre nature preserve that was the satellite property of the Missouri Botanical Garden that was established in the 1920s. In the 1920s, the Nature Reserve started a daffodil trial of hundreds of varieties of daffodils that they were planting to see which commercial varieties were best suited for the Midwest. Those daffodils are still there, untouched, and it's acres wow. and acres of millions of flowers every year. They weren't planted in shallow trenches. They were planted six to eight inches deep with equal amounts of spacing, and they, they grow forever. And all daffodils should do that. Obviously, if you're a cut flower grower, you may not have the space or the desire to keep them all in the same spot for decades. But even if it's just a three or four or five year run, plant them six to eight inches deep and ideally equally apart. Don't have the bulbs touching butt to butt. And some people will say, Jason, they actually, they do fine. And you may have a climate that is ideal to their you know, in the Pacific Northwest, that would be one place where I would think they would actually do much better planted that way. But here in the Midwest, absolutely not. They need depth and spacing. And then they're a permanent fixture. They'll produce armloads of flowers, the biggest flowers you can imagine. So plant them deeply. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a really great tip. I, I usually follow the instructions there, but there's been times when I just have a bunch of extra you know, when the season's getting late, December, January, I don't have them all planted that I've definitely done the short planting and those do not come back as well. So I didn't put two and two together, but that's great to know. Um, well, what are some of the other important things to keep in mind with conditions or soil types that we're planting daffodils into? Well, ideally you want well-draining soil that a daffodil is a, is a geophyte. It's a flower bulb, a true bulb. It needs drainage. It cannot sit in water. It's not an aquatic plant. And there are actually species that grow in floodplains, but we're not growing those in the com commercial market. So well-draining soil, ideally in full sun, but at least morning sun is the best. Um, a lot of growers don't have a full day or, or your backyard may have a lot of shade or high canopy. As long as they're under deciduous trees in the springtime, that's okay because they're leafless. So their sun will get down through there. Uh, so well-draining, at least half day of sun with the morning emphasis. And then leave them alone. That's the, the other thing. You know, Martha Stewart had a segment years ago where she wanted to get creative, like what to do with the floppy daffodil foliage, because once they flower, the foliage looks terrible. So she was braiding them and knotting them and making all these wonderful designs out of the foliage. And then she went to prison. And that's probably why, because the daffodil police <laughs> came after her <laughs> leave that foliage alone. It needs to naturally senesce and die okay. off on its own. Um, at least wait until it's turning yellow and it's falling over limp. Don't cut it. 
but put your feet at the base of the bed, the bulb, and then just yank the foliage. Because when you're you're using any mechanical device to remove the foliage, of course, you're already probably going through with, with knives to cut the stems, but that's how viruses transfer. And, and daffodils are not immune to a host of viruses that can create streaks in the flowers, especially the, the daffodils with yellow petals and white cups or yellow petals and pink cups, you'll often see what's called the zebra effect. It's mosaic virus. Hmm. There's white streaks in those yellow flowers. Um, and then the foliar viruses are typically very um, geometrically contained linear yellow streaks in the foliage. It's not, I don't advise destroying a crop if you if you get bulbs that have those viral symptoms because probably science could prove that 99.9991% of every daffodil bulb commercially cultivated is virused just because of the way the Dutch mechanically multiply the bulbs by chopping, chipping and scaling the bulbs. They undercut them. They mechanically lift them. They cut the flowers off with machinery. There's no way to avoid it. So as long as you grow them healthy, they're fine. Um, but but back to your garden and your own lineouts, leave the foliage to naturally flop over on its own before you remove it. And then only yank it off the ground with your hand versus cutting if, if you can do that. Companion plant with, I mean, there's so many other plants you can put in among the daffodils. At the Botanical Garden, I also had a vast collection of lilies, true lilium. And lilies and daffodils are wonderful bedmates. They The daffodils come up, flower, and as they're coming up, the lilies are creeping through. When the daffodils finish, the lilies start and just keep going. And lilies are omnipresent through the growing season. Most, most hybrids are. There are some that die back early, but those are really great permanent plantings. So if you're a, a long-term three to five-year cut flower grower, I would highly recommend that you interplant the daffodils and the lilies together. Um, you can do a host of annuals among them as well, just to sort of mask that. But one thing that a lot of people don't realize is daffodils have a natural herbicidal tendency in their foliage. So as their foliage is breaking down, they actually, it's almost like they have a pre-emergent naturally built into them. So to direct seed sow, you're still going to get some good stuff, but you get a lot more heft with perennials, herbaceous perennials, or other bulbs that can grow with them. Um, in my little tiny St. Louis city front yard, which is a postage stamp, I, I don't design anything. I don't plan anything. I don't have any great aspirations other than what can I cut to give to the neighbors, friends, doctor's office, whomever for cut flowers. Um, very much the squirrel mentality of planting. Wherever there's a hole, I will find something, I'll dig it and I'll plant it. <laughs> I don't care if it gets huge, small, whatever. If it's just, just gives me a flower. The, the front yard is completely packed with daffodils, tulips, hyacinths. Um, I have the most rotten soil on the planet. In the summertime, you can put your hands together in the praying position and into the cracks that form this clay soil. Oh my gosh. I do water, but not often. So I have utilized a lot of natives, the native okay. bars, as we say, and then some really great floriferous, you know, pollinator-friendly plants that are from oftentimes desert, more xeric conditions than what we would think of in, in Missouri. They can tolerate that extreme soil that don't need a lot of watering because when those daffodil bulbs are dormant in the summertime, they want to be on the dry side. So I would never want to plant with the daffodils other plants that require weekly irrigation or consistent moisture during those June, July, August, September months. 
because the daffodils want to shut down completely. Now, okay. that said, lilies are never dormant, even when the top growth is gone. And during the summer months when they're actively growing or flowering, they do appreciate moisture. You're not going to rot your daffodils if you irrigate or give them some supplemental moisture. But just, I wouldn't plant, you know, not that most people would be planting caladiums or impatient, but something that requires an excessive amount of watering, I would not plant with the daffodils. So veer to the side of more dry loving stuff or drought tolerant plants. Um, and in a garden situation, again, lilies are great. Gladioli are also here in St. Louis. Oh, Gladioluses are, are hardy, most of them. So I would also interplant. And, and glads, if you plant the right cultivars, some of them will, will do secondary or tertiary spikes. So you'll get a longer season. They, nothing is as grand as the first spike set, but they, they keep blooming. So, and if they're hardy, there's a, an old cultivar called Priscilla. I think it's from the 1920s. It should be a hundred year old cultivar. It's rock hardy in St. Louis. In fact, it's almost weedy, which is a great thing because it just blooms and blooms and blooms. Yeah. And I could see how gladioli and daffodils would actually look nice together in terms of their leaves and good timing and everything. I'm going to actually, I've just had a big lily order. So I'm going to plant them with the daffodils because that was one of my questions for you was what to co-plant so that the daffodils aren't the only thing in that bed for the whole year. So thank you. These are, these are great tips. Um, and then also in the home garden setting, how I know you mentioned three to five years for your plants, but do you recommend that home gardeners dig and divide or would you just leave them like that leave place them. that's been a hundred years? Plant for permanent. So okay. in the right site, the right depth, space them a little farther apart than you think you would look good the first year or two. Okay. Because they're going to clump. You, you Nothing is more beautiful than a big clump of daffodils in the springtime. And if you plant the bulbs, too closely together, they're going to choke each other out just by the clumps. So at the Botanical Garden, we would plant lilies, daffodils, gladiolus, colchicum, crocuses, um, some of the hardy agapanthus or the hardy eucomus together. Okay. And I would plant everything on a 12 to 15 inch center, which sounds extreme. Wow. But in two or three years time, each one of those components which flowered at a different season. It was just a consistent continuum of earliest spring to late fall. There was always something growing and blooming and they all produce specimen clumps. So you would have a mass of one singular element, even though initially I started them off way far apart. Um, it doesn't have to be that extreme, but at least eight to 10 inches of, of spacing between them, which gives you space for other things. The lilies, a lot of the Orient pet lilies, a lot of the Asiatic lilies will not only produce large bulbs, they'll produce lots of large bulbs. And here, um, I also do lily breeding <laughs> because <laughs> um, we we could get Orient pet bulbs here the size of cantaloupes easily after two oh or three God. years in the ground. So that's something that, again, you you know, if if you have everything crammed together, you're never going to see a full representation of what all those flowers can do. It's just going to sort of like, eh, and then choke each other out. Okay. That's, that's really helpful. Thank yeah. you. Patience is virtuous. You hear that, <laughs> that corny saying all through life. It's like, really? But then you get 20 years behind you bulb gardening and you're like, that's what they were talking about. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
Um, okay. So before we get to some listener questions, I promise we're wrapping up. Thank you so much for your time. This is like amazing knowledge. Um, I was wondering if you could clear up for me something I've always wondered, which is the difference between daffodils and narcissus, or if there is one, there isn't one. So narcissus, oh, okay. narcissus is the scientific name or the, the genus. Oh. Name. It's the name of the genera narcissus. Daffodil is just the common name for narcissus. Okay. So daffodils and narcissus are interchangeable no matter how you want to do it. Within the genus narcissus or daffodils, there are 13 different horticultural divisions that the Royal Horticultural Society has assigned to help us make sense of all the different, the morphological characteristics of these flowers. So trumpets, large cups, small cups, uh, doubles, jonquils, triandrus, cyclamenius, poets, poetas, uh, the bulbicodiums, the species, each of those is a different type. So all jonquils are daffodils, but not all daffodils are jonquils. How does that sound? Okay. That makes sense. I think for some reason, I feel like I've seen people divide and oh, say, this is narcissus and this is better than the daffodils. So that that's really you have. good to know. It's just simple. All daffodils are narcissus and vice versa. <laughs> the Dutch have for 200 years, for some bizarre reason, categorized the small cups the okay. poets, the, the even the large cups as narcissi and the trumpets and the doubles as daffodils. Hmm. Who knows what commercial reason other than to make you think that there's something different so you should buy all of it. Um, but all narcissus are daffodils. It's just narcissus is the, the scientific name for the genus and daffodil is the common name for the genus. Okay. Well, um, I wanted to just mention that your adorable cat, Sam was just on the video screen with us and I love that. Uh, he has a daffodil called little Sam that's uh, named for him and it's in the Netherlands. And I hope to see it flowering this spring. It's a little oh. Sam's dwarf and so is his daffodil. So <laughs> awesome. Well, if you have time for a few listener questions, Absolutely. I think we can Absolutely. close with that. Um, so Lisa, Liz, Carolyn, and Historic Blooms all wrote in. They want to know how you save daffodil seeds and how to germinate them and just a little bit more about the process of growing from seed. So that's where I'm going to jump out on a limb and think that maybe they're thinking that I you can grow cut daffodils from seed like you could zinnias. Absolutely not. Um, daffodil seed is produced from cross-pollinating. So you have to first cross-pollinate the flowers and then you collect the seeds a couple months after the, the seeds have matured. But then you plant those seeds again, in the, either then or throughout the summer, but before September, they need to, the seed coat on daffodils is quite thick and it, you don't want to scarify it, but you want to give it in the soil. Uh, a lot of breeders will pre-soak the seeds overnight in just a water solution or in a damp paper towel plant them. But then again, it's at least five years, five. six years, but typically not until the seventh year that you get your first flower. Wow. So, okay. So it, really probably most growers aren't going to want to do that at home. Yeah. Daffodils <laughs> are produced. What, what creates the cut flower daffodil market are offset bulbs. So to buy the bulbs wholesale in number or individually from me, however it may be. But um, if, yeah, if you want to breed the daffodils, that's the process. And the storage, you just 
if you can't plant them right away, you just keep them in a, I put them in little seed pack envelopes or like little manila envelopes and in a cool, dry place until I'm ready to plant. But it is not an effective means of producing daffodils for any sort of cut flower application or or other otherwise, unless you're breeding new cultivars. But then okay. 20 years is your investment of time for one <laughs> for one new thing. Maybe if someone has like a big open field and they just want to throw the seeds, yes, <laughs> go for it. But it's going to be a long time. <laughs> and you'll find in these old historic plantings of daffodils that have been in situ for a hundred plus years, there will be a lot of natural hybrids because daffodils will okay. produce their own seeds and, and sow themselves. But again, it's, it's a decades long process. So, okay. And then Ken wants to know if all daffodils naturalize. So there's a difference between naturalizing and perennializing. Okay. We, we're taught from basically commercial vendors that they naturalize, which means they persist indefinitely and they, they fill a field and they, they look great in a wild setting. Um, daffodils will persist forever if planted correctly and the right varieties are chosen and put in the right spot but it's perennializing that they do. And yes, they are one of the best perennial bulbs on the planet. True naturalizing is when you take a plant and it produces colonies of offspring from seed. So what we think of wildflowers in the woods, that's naturalizing because you can have two or three bluebell plants. And after 50 years, you have acres of bluebells all from seed. That's naturalizing. Daffodils don't Yes, I just said that they they can do that, but the seeds truly fall right down from where that stem was, and that clump grows right next to the the mother clump, if you will. So, okay. yes, they are phenomenal long term landscape plants that can persist. I mean, in the UK, you can go to historic gardens where there are daffodils that have been there for hundreds of years. Un okay. So yes, Ken. Yes. <laughs> um, and then Aaron wants to know if it's too late to plant their daffodil bulbs this year, but did not specify where they live. So is there anywhere in the U.S. that you think people could still get bulbs in and, and have a bloom? Yes. St. Louis, Missouri, because I still have about 10,000 bulbs in my cold storage <laughs> that are the runs that I have to find a home for. Um, as long as the ground is not frozen, if you live in a northern climate, and as long as the bulbs are viable, I mean, you clearly, you don't want to plant something that's papery and rotten or desiccated. If they're viable, they're sound, they're solid, they have maybe some growth pointing out of them and you can get outside and plant, do it, go for it. It's, Great. you're going to have a really rough display this year. It's going to be super late. Most likely they will come on and flower when it's getting really warm. At least here in the Midwest, we get hot end of May, 1st of June. And that's when those daffodils will flower that I will be planting now. Um, but the next year, they'll totally make up for lost time and look like a normally uh, grown cultivar. If you live in the deep south, a lot of people, I don't think, realize that you know, daffodils are, are a coast-to-coast -coast plant. But what we grow here in the north or in the Midwest and what you would have in, in the Pacific Northwest will not grow in the coastal Gulf Coast communities Tallahassee, Florida is about as far south as a daffodil will grow in the U.S. Okay. In Southern California, it's too hot throughout the year. They don't vernalize. They have to have a cold period. So there are some daffodil types that thrive in these Mediterranean climates or more northern Gulf coastal states that we cannot grow at all here in the Midwest, or you would struggle with growing there. 
and conversely, they can't grow what we can. So I, I guess, as you said, you know, where, where are you coming from with that question geographically? So if it's a, a cold climate, otherwise that you're having winter right now and you can get out there and plant them, go for it. Better that than, than throw them away. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we got a lot of other listener questions, but we covered all of that already. So I guess I would just ask any final tips on growing daffodils or if people have ordered from you anything special they should know about how to plant those. Always plant more bulbs. <laughs> never <laughs> plant enough bulbs. So daffodils, daffodils, daffodils. Don't forget to gift daffodil bulbs to friends, neighbors. If you, I mean, this... In my neighborhood, there's always children who walk by with their parents who are like, oh, wow, what's that? Those are the first people you want to give bulbs to is the next generation, someone who takes interest, help them plant that that bulb, if you will. Um, the American Daffodil Society has a, a fantastic website that will answer every question culturally that you will have about a daffodil, including links to historical references, the online catalog library, um, there's every link and there's a, a wonderful resource called DAFSEEK, D-A-F-F-S-E-E-K.org. And it's an online encyclopedia of photos of thousands of cultivars of daffodils. Um, it's not perfect, but it helps people to, to see what's out there insofar as different types, different colors. Utilize reputable resources. I see so many times people posting photos of daffodils that they've received from a wholesaler. Um, and of course it came, it was purchased as one name, but what they're holding up in their bouquet is something completely different. You wanna, first of all, don't be offended if I private message you or direct message you and say, by the way, that's actually not replete. That's Delnashaw or whatever it might be. <laughs> I'm only out there to try to spread the good word that we want these cultivars as they are photographed and promoted to be accurate when that happens. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of really great American companies, Color Blends, John Cheapers, Brenton Becky's Bulbs, White Flower Farm, for the people who are just wanting, you know, smaller quantities of stuff that's, it's all grown in the Netherlands, but those are reputable companies that can really provide a, a good array of strong commercial varieties that people want to try, plus all the other bulbs. And then look for your, promote your specialists like myself as well. I am, I think this year, I may be the only American daffodil supplier that grows and sells their daffodils. There are other daffodil vendors in the United States, but they're import only companies. So, you know, promote the little guy like me because we, I want to continue this. I want to promote the daffodils. Um, I grow a lot of unusual stuff that you won't find anywhere else. So, yeah. Oh, I'm so excited to see mine bloom. I, I bought several varieties. I could only afford like two each, <laughs> but I put them in the, a very special planter. They're eight inches deep. And I labeled each section because I just didn't want to mix them in with my other bulbs. And I am just so excited to see them bloom. I went through all of your pages and like looked at each profile and I, I probably picked out like 30 or 40 that I wanted. And then I had to narrow it down to 10. So <laughs> um, anyway, I just can't wait to see them bloom and I'll send you photos once they're up. If, if that's not too many daffodil photos for Absolutely you, I'm sure not. you see them every day. <laughs> I do get there, but I, I encourage that too. I, I appreciate that people 
want to know what they have growing or to share what they are growing uh, in whatever capacity it is. So please send the photos to me. Um, the catalog this year, we're, we're going to reduce our numbers of cultivars this year down, but I also have this daylily component that I mentioned earlier. Okay. We have 1,600 and some odd cultivars of diploid daylilies, and I will be selling daylilies this year because I have to dig and divide the collection because it's getting too crowded. So um, I'm hoping late May, but most likely sometime in mid-June is when my list will go out. Okay. You can go to the website, you can sign up for the newsletter, and we do not do loads of newsletters. It's usually one a week before I offer the, the bulbs for sale. Um, and your information is private. I promise you that. So sign up so I know who you are so that you can be apprised. Because when we do list the bulbs for sale, it's a crazed feeding frenzy. <laughs> Instant. Some of the ones I want. Yeah. I mean, I logged on the minute, <laughs> but things were getting sold out. Like I checked back later in the day and almost yeah. everything was gone. <laughs> this year, no joke. In the very first day we opened the catalog, we exceeded last year's four month sales window in the oh first day. Oh so we're trying to figure out. So for all you who are listening to this, who have been frustrated by the fact that your shopping cart got emptied out, um, <laughs> don't walk away from your shopping cart. And you can always write me to say you wanted this, but you didn't get it. Limited quantities, but we, you know, it's whoever wipes out the stock first is going to get it. And I, I know that's aggravating, but it also keeps things interesting because it's sort of like, you know, what did I actually get? So, <laughs> but, but thank you everyone who has supported me in this endeavor and Sarah, especially you for, for approaching me with this podcast uh, opportunity. I, I think this is fantastic. I really do. Yeah, I can, I'm just so excited to see where this all goes. And thank you so much for joining and for all the information you gave to us. And the very last thing is, do you want to just mention your website and your Instagram, how people can find you? Sure. Uh, the company is PHS Daffodils. And it's on Instagram, PHS Daffodils. My name is Jason Delaney. You can look up uh, Jason Delaney as well on Instagram. I do have a Facebook page for PHS Daffodils, but I, I don't use it at all. I need to start because I you know, have more followers. Um, but you can, the American Daffodil Society's website also has a, a suppliers page. I'm listed there. Um, in the American Florists, uh, Floral Growers Association magazine this month, I believe it is. I'm featured there. So you'll see that for the cut flower daffodils and yeah, www.phsdaffodils.com is the website. We are currently updating the website. So you'll only see that everything is sold out from last year. Um, the 2023 listing will not go on the, the website until again, late May or June. And at that time, all over Instagram, I'll be letting everyone know, as well as those who've signed up for the newsletter that I will promote the, the opening sales date. I'm so thankful to Jason for being on the podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about PHS Daffodils, I'll link to the website and socials that he just mentioned in the podcast notes. So you can just scroll down and click there. And if you've listened into last week's Flower Friend episode on seed starting, you know that I set up a new hotline for you guys. It's a Flower Friends hotline where you can leave a voicemail. 
And you can call in to leave a message about anything flower related. So you can tell me a funny like garden story, a floral story, I don't know, some personal flower news, ask a question, anything you'd like to, anything flower related, and your message might get played on the podcast. So the number is 7313 flower or 731-335-6937. You can put that in your phone as flower friends, (laughs) Sarah at flower friends. (laughs) I'll be a new contact in your phone, but it would be wonderful to hear from you. Thank you for the few of you that have called in so far. It was so much fun to get your message and I will play some of those on future episodes. I'm going to try to keep them with things that are related to each other. So it might be a little bit before you hear yours, but I'll try to try to sneak them all in. And I just wanted to say that the reason I started the hotline is because this podcast, I want it to be interactive. And I'm trying to do that on the Instagram account through like you know, stories where you can ask questions or leave opinions or things like that. But it's, it's really fun to hear your voice, especially on this like audio medium. So I thought it would be wonderful to just set up that phone number and have you call in and leave a message. And just one more time, I'm not picking up the phone if you call. So don't worry about that. It's just go straight to voicemail and you can leave a message there. Thanks so much for listening in to today's episode. And if you would like to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to rate and review it and then hit the subscribe button wherever you listen. And don't forget to follow along on that Instagram account I mentioned. I share photos that go along with each episode. It's at Flower Friends Podcast on Instagram. So I hope you have a lovely week that's filled with flowers. And until next time, flower friends, this is Sarah Nayani signing off from Seattle.